Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Join me as we pray, and then Ronnie's going to come up and preach the word for us. Father, first we praise you that we get to say our Father. We recognize this is only because of your grace, and it's because of the work that your Son has done. Father, we recognize in that statement that we're not saved uh, just purely individually, but we're saved into a family and into a community. That We have brothers and sisters, and we thank you for that gift. We thank you for the gift of friends. We thank you for the gift of community. We thank you for the gift to be able to call someone when we're struggling, when we're hurting. And we thank you, even as Hunter said earlier, just for the gift of presence and people showing up. Father, we thank you in the midst of so much change in our culture that you are an unchangeable, immutable, perfect God. And the one thing that remains and stays constant is you and in your love for us and our identities and who we are in Christ. We praise you that for eternity, that's unshakable. Father, we pray for the Carters right now and for little Valerie. Uh, we pray for her recovery. Um, we praise you for a, a, a healthy and successful surgery. But we pray for your continual protection over her and for your peace over their family. God, restore her fully. Let it be a miracle, Father. We pray that. We pray for all the children. What's going on in GCC Kids right now that you would save and transform hearts and lives, that we would recognize discipleship doesn't start later on in life, but it starts now. Equip our parents, Father encourage them. And we pray as a church family, we would grow. We would grow in what it looks like to love one another. We would grow in what it looks like to love the city you've placed us in. Father, we pray for other churches in our community. We pray for UFC. We pray for First Baptist this morning. We pray that all churches, the number one thing that's proclaimed is the good news of the gospel, what your son has done. And through that, you would save and transform our city as a whole. We pray all this in Jesus name. Amen. So good morning, everybody. As it was said earlier, welcome to Gospel Community Church. If you've never been here before, our whole aim and goal is to make Jesus. If this thing cuts out a bunch of times, Zach, you, you, you hooked me up, but my daughter kept messing with it. She's been having quite a, quite a bit of a morning. So I was holding her during worship and she kept touching it and pulling at the string. So I apologize for that. If it does start to go in and out, maybe just come up here and help me. If you've been with Gospel Community Church for a while, uh, at least the last couple of weeks, we've been going through a sermon series called Catchphrases That Crush. And what we've been doing is just looking at some things in our culture that we hear about uh, that are continually used, whether it's like self-services or product, that can actually be pretty harmful. That could be counter-scriptural and, and kind of destroy us. And we're pointing to the Bible and what God says as to how we're supposed to live in light of what he's done for us and in light of our relationship to one another that is a, a better and holier way of living. Um, we're going to take a break from that this Sunday and do a bit of a standalone sermon. That's why we didn't show the bumper this morning. And just looking at what Jesus thought of the church, what the church is, is meant to be, and some of the implications for us as Christians as we live together in community. And so we're going to be looking today in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. So if you want to go ahead and grab your Bible now and get to there, I highly encourage you follow along with us. As we work our way through Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, if you don't have a Bible, there are actually some physical copies in the back of the room, or if you, know, you have it on your phone, I encourage you to pull it up and follow along. As you get there, we're kind of jumping straight into the gospel of Matthew. We haven't been going through this as a church, and so I do want to provide a little bit of context as we just jump into the middle of the gospel, jump into the end of chapter 12, looking at these four verses. Let's consider what's going on before, we, before I dive in and read them. 
This passage is taking place in the midst of Jesus's public ministry. So he's been, he's been traveling around, going from village to village. He's healing people. He's casting out demons. He's teaching. He's preaching about the kingdom of God coming to earth. And he's gathering a large following of people. He has a large crowd of people following him from city to city. Now, if you look at Matthew chapter 12, there's not a lot in this chapter that's going to provide a whole lot of context and tell you where exactly Jesus is. There's some clues that you could probably piece it together. But the good news is this story is actually told in two parallel accounts. So this is actually in Mark and Luke in chapters three and eight, respectively. So it helps fill out the story a little bit and gives us a little bit more background to what's going on here. And in Mark chapter three, if you go back to Mark chapter one, it says that Jesus is back in Galilee. If you're familiar with Jesus's life and ministry, Galilee is where he's from. He was raised in Nazareth, which is a part of the greater region of Galilee. And so he's back in his hometown where his family is, where people know him, where he grew up. And so this is a place of great familiarity to Jesus. And from Mark chapter three, we also get a little bit of interesting information that helps fill out the story and tells us, as we'll see why his mother and brothers are looking for him. As Jesus is performing these miracles, he's saying all these controversial things and causing all different kinds of, stirring the pot amongst the rabbis, challenging the religious leaders of his day, his family is looking for him in Mark 3.21, it says, so that they may seize him, so that they can grab Jesus. They're looking to capture him and pull him away from all this stuff that he's doing. And why would they want to do something like this? Well, Mark 3.21 says that his, his family says it's because he is out of his mind. So this is what's setting the stage for what we're looking at today in Matthew 12, 46 through 50. Jesus' family thinks he's crazy. That's where we're starting. So let's take a look at Matthew 12, verses 46 through 50. <clears throat> what Jesus says about the church and how that should influence how we live. Matthew 12, verse 46, while he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my mother and sister, or is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we've been here for six years. That in itself is a grace, is a grace of God. Thank you for helping us as we've struggled to find a, a place to come and gather and meet together. Uh, we pray that this passage would encourage us as we continue to live together in community, which is incredibly hard, God. Uh, people of all different kinds of experiences, differences, backgrounds, and opinions coming together to worship Jesus. It truly is a work of the Holy Spirit in drawing a, a bunch of people from uh, so many different lifestyles to you. Uh, you've reconciled us to God, you, to yourself. You're reconciling us to one another. We pray that you would continue to do this work amongst your people. And we pray that through this passage, we would see exactly what your son believes about the church, what he feels about it, and how it stirred him into act in coming to live and die for us. And I pray that we would begin to emulate Christ in that, that we would look to live and die for one another and seeking to grow in greater Christ-likeness. God, we thank you for this time. Pray this in Jesus. So you'll have to forgive me. Every time the weather changes, I have really bad allergies, and I got water. And it spilled all over the stage as Rick was praying. So I'm really sorry. 
if my voice is really froggy today. So verse 46, right here, we have Jesus speaking to the people. He's in the middle of a public ministry moment where he's speaking to a crowd. And I mentioned this before, everywhere he went, he had quite the following. Jesus was doing incredible things, obviously, with the healing, casting out demons, different miracles that he performed. But a lot of his teaching was garnishing a lot of attention, especially as he began to push back against the religious leaders of his day. The rabbis were constantly coming and challenging him. So this is a large part of what Jesus did in his public ministry, the teaching and preaching. And this passage says, his mother and his brothers stood outside. Now, again, Luke chapter eight fills this out a little bit and gives us a little bit more context to this story because it says in Luke 8, 19, that they couldn't reach him, his family, because of the crowd. So it's not that Jesus is maybe in some private room of 20 and 30 people and his family is literally outside. Maybe there's some kind of bouncer keeping them out. The crowd around Jesus is so large that his family can't even call out to him in the midst of it. Now, what's, what's interesting about technology nowadays, you can actually get a little bit of a picture if you want to, even now, I, I won't care if you pulled out your phone. If you Google, what does a crowd of 5,000 people look like? Just to get an idea, because maybe it can be hard. What does 5,000 people look like? You can see, we, we know of other parts of, of scripture that Jesus has had a crowd of up to around 5,000 people when he fed the 5,000. Some people speculate and say it could have been upwards of 15,000 because the passage says 5,000 men. So maybe there was more women and children. So if you wanted to get an idea of what exactly it looked like with all these people, how is it that his family can't even reach out to Jesus in the midst of this crowd? You can look up online and see what that would look like. And you begin to understand a little bit of why they weren't able to come and and reach out and speak to Jesus. Because of this, they have to ask to, they have to speak to people that are there listening to the teachings of Jesus. And this is interesting. It caused me to reflect on something that's happened in my own life a couple of times is that I've had people like outside the church, you know, non-Christians, non-believers come to me and ask me for prayer at different times in my life, whether it's for a special occasion or a certain circumstance they may have been going through. And I've always thought that was kind of interesting. Maybe some of you have experienced the same thing. Sometimes people know we go to church or they know we're, we're Christians or maybe we've, we've shared the gospel with them before. And so they come to us in, in whatever time of, of need or celebration and they ask, hey, could you pray for us? which is interesting. I mean, in a sense, they're kind of asking us to mediate for them, to talk to God on their behalf. And who knows why? Uh, It could be maybe they think, well, I'm not a very righteous or holy person. I don't go to church every Sunday, but I know this person does. Maybe God listens to them. Could be the thinking behind it. Here in this passage, it's kind of interesting because we have Jesus's flesh and blood relatives having to speak to his followers just to be able to come and talk to him. And later in this passage, we see Jesus replied to somebody, but it wasn't his family. Those who may be here listening that wouldn't consider them followers of Christ, who wouldn't consider themselves Christians, maybe not in regular church attendance or something, are wondering, like, maybe if I'm going through something, I need somebody who appears to be more righteous or holy to come to God and pray for him on on my behalf. But we look at the parallel passage in Luke, and and what's interesting about this whole idea is that it's just some no-name person who comes up to Jesus and tells him, hey, your mother and brothers are looking for you outside. And he hears them and he responds to the call of his followers who are together sitting under the teaching of Christ. What bigger connection to fame could you have other than the mother of God, Jesus's mother? And that was not enough in this passage to come and talk to Jesus. But this no-name follower 
who Jesus sees in the crowd amongst his other disciples, other people that are following him, and he has instant access to Christ to come and speak to him. And as we'll see, he has a greater connection to Jesus than even his own family. So how does Jesus respond to this? His mothers and brothers looking for him. Well, before we move on to the next verse, if you did pull open your Bible and you were following along, reading the verses with us, if you're paying careful attention, you might notice something interesting about this passage, 46 through 50. Does anybody notice anything unusual? Depending on the Bible translation, you might even have a note there. There's no 47. Verse 47 is missing. Now, what dark and dirty secret are they hiding from us that they would take verse 47 out of the Bible? Well, brace yourselves, because I'm going to share it with you right now. The mysterious verse 47. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. I know. Crazy, right? Jokes aside, why is this passage missing? Why is this not in the Bible? And what does it have to do with the church and Jesus's relationship to it and our our role in the church? What does this have to do with anything? Well, as people over the last 2,000 years have found more and more copies of the original manuscript, the original Greek manuscripts, they've compiled them, dated them, compared them to one another, it became more and more obvious over time where mistakes had been made, maybe things added, whether on accident or purposely to fill out some information, a lot of times people think it might be like malicious, but we, we've discovered like 99.99% of it is just simple errors or mistakes. What's nice is we have so many, we're able to clearly point out where those are. In the case of verse 47, it's as simple as we've discovered a gap between verses 47 and 48 and enough of the earlier manuscripts that we've concluded it's more than likely just a later edition. It probably wasn't in the original writings, which is interesting. Verse 47 is kind of in the parallel passage in Luke. So whoever... Whoever initially wrote this probably left verse 47 out, but it's kind of implied as you read verse 48, Jesus is responding to somebody. So later on, somebody thought, well, I know this is implied. I'm just going to put it in here because it's in the gospel of Luke. And that's why when verses were put in the Bible, they probably, you know, later on, we decided verse 47 probably didn't initially belong in there. And now, as I was joking earlier, it's not a crazy addition, but it is noteworthy, especially in the context of this passage and in the context of this message as a whole, many people in and outside the church believe that we received our Bible from some kind of council, some kind of official church council of religious leaders sitting together and figuring this out, whether it be the Council of Rome in 382, or people may think the Council of Nicaea, where they sat down and said, these are the books that we're going to have in the Bible. But that is absolutely false, 100% false. The councils, if they did anything, they only confirmed what God was already establishing through his church and his people as scripture. It wasn't a bunch of professionals sitting around at a council saying, okay, this book is in and this one's out. I don't think we can really control people with this one. We definitely need to pull that one out. Instead, the books that are a part of our Bible contain what was already going viral amongst God's people. And this may be a, a, an incautious illustration, but it's more like this. It wasn't as if Fox News or CNN came together and they were reporting on, on what had happened. It was more akin to a viral YouTube video of what happened on the ground, unedited, that was being shared like wildfire amongst the church. And basically CNN and Fox News had to come together and say, yes, this happened. This was truth and report on it. They were forced by what was happening by God's people. 
So these books were already being heavily circulated by God's people, not an official Roman Catholic church council. Now, what does that tell us about the church and the people of God that God is called to be a part of it? God accomplishes his work through the church, through his people, through believers. Later in the book of Matthew, Jesus tells Peter that he will build his church on this rock. I believe rock, he's meaning like earth. I'm going to come and I'm going to bring my church on this earth. And he tells Peter that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And what are gates used for? That's not an offensive structure. It's not a trebuchet or a catapult launching boulders over the castle walls. A gate is a defensive structure meant to keep something out. God is crashing upon the gates of hell and the church is his battering ram. It's interesting. I was a, I was a veteran for, or I'm a veteran. I was in the military for 13 years. So I, I guess I technically am a veteran. Those who served in the military will, will be familiar with the term I'm about to share with you. And I, I'm sharing it because of its relevance to this passage. We have a term called stolen valor. If you want to go look it up and educate yourself a little bit, don't do it with kids around because there's probably some, some language. Some of these altercations get a little heated. What stolen valor is, quickly describe it. Basically, it's when someone pretends to be a soldier. They'll put on the uniform or different awards or something like this. And for, for all different kinds kinds of reasons. Maybe they're trying to garner some kind of respect or adoration. Sometimes it's for handouts and whatnot. And they're, they're, this, if you watch the YouTube videos or, or just some videos of people calling people out for stolen valor, it, it, it infuriates veterans. Those who have served, it, it makes them a little angry. I don't get too upset about it. I don't, I don't know what's going on in that person's life that they would impersonate a soldier. But a lot of veterans who have served, it infuriates them because we, we've lost limbs, lives, and lucidity in a lot of the wars and stuff that we've participated in. So for, for someone to put on the uniform and pretend to be something that they're not, it kind of bothers those who have served faithfully and have gone through some of the difficult things it means to be a soldier in all different kinds of militaries around the world. I bring that up to say for the Christian who says they don't need the church, or they don't need to participate in the church, I have a few problems with that kind of thinking. One, it's just not true. God is a relational God. He has eternally existed in three persons, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even before humanity ever existed, God was in community with one another, living relationally. And then he created humankind. And then he called a people to himself. He didn't call individuals and save individual people, but he saved people. Even in the Old Testament, you see he, we, he works with the people of Israel, not just individual believers, but he works with a people. So that one's not true. Two, even if it were true that you, you don't technically need the church, maybe you got your life all figured out. You think you're very, you know, I've got my life. I got what I need. I'm perfect. I'm righteous. I don't ever have any problems or anything. If that's true, we need you. Uh, we need you to be here exhorting and encouraging one another. Just as if, even as it was mentioned earlier, when DJ and Renee got up and spoke of gospel community group, I'm encouraged when I go and attend their gospel community church and hear what other believers are going through and I'm exhorted by them and encouraged in what I'm going through. And so we need each other. But third, I bring up the stolen valor thing to say that if you are a Christian who says, I don't need the church, personally, I believe you're a soldier in name only. You see, if, if you love Christ, it will change some things about you. Some of us know this. We don't, we don't love our sin anymore. You know, maybe we still do it. We don't live in this perfectly sinless life, but we have a different relationship with our sin now. We hate our sin. We hate the things that we continue to do. There's a difference and change in our heart now that we are following Christ. We'll hate what he hates, but we'll also love what Jesus loves. 
And what did Jesus think of the church? In Acts 20, 28, Paul says to the elders in Ephesus, care for the church of God, which he, Jesus, obtained with his own blood. Paul tells the elders in Ephesus, you see this thing I'm calling you to take care of? Jesus died for it. Don't mishandle it. I know this is a law on a verse that most likely wasn't even in the original. But even in its absence, we see how God is working through his church to accomplish his purposes. Sure, the church is not perfect, obviously. Exhibit A, spend five minutes with my wife, she'll tell you. No individual in the church is perfect and no individual church is perfect. And the, and the church at large is not perfect. It's had its, it's had its sins over the years. But as Corey Ten Boom once said, a woman who was harboring Jews during World War II and was even turned over by her own citizens, as she once said, God can strike a straight blow with a crooked stick. And we are that instrument through which God has determined to bring the good news of his coming to this earth. And there are no bench warmers in God's team. Everyone is out on the field, encouraging, exhorting, growing in greater Christ-likeness together. Now, how does Jesus respond to his family wanting to see him? Look at verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Jesus asked a rhetorical question here. It's not that he's literally forgotten his question, but he's asking, who's my real family? Who's my eternal family? Who will be those ones that are there with me in heaven with my father for all of eternity? Surely, as he says this, there might be some people in the crowd that are in some kind of confusion. Maybe even a lot of people in a great deal of expectancy because this was not the first time that Jesus would drop some kind of big spiritual truth after asking a very confusing rhetorical question like this. Even more so, look at verse 49, when he says, and stretching out his hand toward his disciples. He stretches out his hands in the midst of a, a great crowd to those who are following him. And this is an important side note. I'll, I'll mention this again as we're closing, but I, I, I mean, look at Rick standing in the back of the church right now. Look at him back there. Now everyone's just a little confused right now, probably thinks I'm going crazy. Why? Because Rick's not back there. You don't point to somebody who's not in the room with you. These people weren't following Jesus privately in their hearts or privately back in their home. They showed up. They were following Jesus. They were there listening to his teaching. They were disciples of Christ. So he stretches out his hands to the people that are there. And now he has everyone's attention. He says, here are my mother and my brothers. What? I mean, from a human perspective, there's no way Jesus could have known each individual person and vice versa. There's no way each individual person, especially if it was a crowd as large as it was, could know Jesus, especially well enough to be able to consider him family. But what kind of terms you think you may or may not be on with Jesus does not determine your status with him as, as one of his family members. Why is it that these people gathered around Jesus listening to Jesus' teachings, following him, setting aside time in their lives, which were potentially busier than ours, why are these people following him considered family to Jesus? Now, Jesus has more to say in verse 50, but considering everything we've known so far, what, I, what we've examined in this passage, the parallel passage, and, the, and a little bit of the context leading up to this, I believe they're considered family because they're following Jesus, and that's it. They're, they are following Christ. Everything leading up to this point has been all about Jesus. Jesus is the one teaching. Jesus is the one healing. He's the one traveling from village to village. And later on in this same chapter, Matthew 12, he's even pointing forward by talking about the sign of Jonah 
how he is going to die and be raised up again for his people, for his family, for us. And if that alone doesn't help you see the grace of God in drawing a group of people to himself through nothing that we have done, but instead through what Jesus has done, look at verse 50. It's all about Jesus and what he's done, not us. Look at verse 50. What does he say? For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, some of you may, may, if you're paying attention carefully, you might be like, wait a second. I thought you just said it's not about what we do. Jesus sounds like he's contradicting you in this verse. It says that for whoever does the will of my father. And I agree with you. It does say here that Jesus says that we need to be doing something. He says, for whoever does the will of my father. But a couple of things. This is not the first time that Jesus has mentioned this in the gospel of Matthew. This isn't the first time he said this phrase. In Matthew 12, uh, 7, 21, Jesus says, uh, he gives a, a, par- a parable and then in explaining it, talking about who will be entered into the kingdom of God, who will be considered Jesus' family, Jesus closes with this in Matthew 7, 21. Now, whoever says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. So this passage here that we're looking at is the second time Jesus has said that. And if you look at both of these passages together, it doesn't take a doctoral degree in theology to sit there and say, okay, this is incredibly important. And and there's something we need to know from this passage. I mean, what is the first question you want to know the answer to when reading these two verses? What's the will of the Father? Like, what what do we need to know in order to be in, in, in order to enter into heaven? Because this is critically important. We need to know this. What's the will of His Father? In both of these passages, you have to look at the context to, to really see, like, what does it mean is the will? Because Jesus kind of leaves them both as it is. He doesn't go on to explain it further in, the, in those passages. But there are two places I think we can go for a very specific and clear answer to the question, what is the will of God that I must be doing to be considered one of Jesus' family members, to be, to be considered uh, a son or daughter of God? One of them is everything I've talked about already. I think it's the the passage, the parallel passages, everything that's leading up to this point, it's all about Jesus. It's all about following him. Those who have faith in him, that's what makes him part of his family. But there's another place we can go. And that's John 6, 29. John 6, 29, Jesus is answering the rabbis. They're coming to him and asking him questions about what must we be doing? What works must we be doing to enter into the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus responds in John 6, 29. He says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now he uses a different word. He doesn't use the word will in John 6, 29. He uses the word work. But I honestly think that's probably only because the rabbis are asking him, what work must we be doing? And he's using the same language back to them. I think Jesus may have very well used the same word. The will of God is that you believe in him and whom he has sent. Because that word will in in the Greek, thelema, or its root, thelo, means to wish or will or desire. So if a good example could be if I want my son, my my oldest son, Miles, if I want him to pick up his room or pick up his toys, my will, my desire is that he pick up his toys. And so the work that he must be doing to fulfill my desire, to fulfill my wish is to pick up his toys. That's the connection between those two words, work and will, that may cause some confusion. So when in John 6, 29, when the rabbis challenge him, what must they be doing to do God's work? Jesus tells them, John 6, 29, this is the work of God that you believe in him 
Jesus, whom he, the father has sent. What Jesus says in verse 50 in Matthew 12, looking back in Matthew 12 and verse 50, whoever does the will of my father is in agreement with everything I've pointed to in establishing the crowd's familiar relationship to him. Why are they listening to Jesus? Why are they following him? It's because they believe him. They're accomplishing the works of God in John 6, 29, because they believe in him, Jesus, whom the father has sent. We don't know anything of this crowd other than that they're following them and that qualifies them to be called one of his own. We know nothing of their sin. We know nothing of their petty differences between one another, their backgrounds, what they were doing that, that morning before they came in and followed Jesus. But by the grace of God, they are his family because they believe in him whom they have sent, whom he has sent. And that faith moved their feet to action. As I said, some of them were following him from village to village. Some were already in Galilee coming out to come and listen to him, but they were there listening. Some of them traveling many miles just to be in the presence of their savior and sit under his teaching. If you haven't placed your faith in Christ to save you, you're not part of Jesus's family. But like the people in that crowd, it doesn't matter what you've done. Jesus is inviting you to be a part of his family, to be a part of the bigger community of followers. And I'm here today inviting you to be a part of the family. Through faith in Christ, you can take hold of all the benefits of being a son or daughter of the most powerful being in all the universe, the creator of the universe. And I'll close with saying this. If you have placed your faith in Jesus and following him, then you should follow him along with your brothers and sisters in Christ in community. Be a part of the church that God has established. Show up, commit yourselves to the bride that Jesus went to the cross for. We saw that earlier. Get plugged in and serve, maybe even in a sacrificial way. There are some times where there's, you know, when I, when I first became a Christian, I wanted to be a police officer. And so I thought, well, I'll serve on the safety team because there was a clear connection to, between a desire that I want to do in the outside world and what I could do for the church. And I'm sure Zach and, and Nathan and some of those that have worked in the audio tech field have a passion for those kinds of things. And so it's a, it's a great place where those two things, your desire and what the church needs just kind of comes together. But sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes you just plug in because there's a need somewhere. Um, you know, some people think because I have four kids, I just absolutely love kids. Not true. I'll talk about that later. But sometimes, sometimes in the kids ministry, there's a hurt. That's why Rick's back there right now. That's why I was back there last week. You know, it, I mean, would it be crazy to do something that doesn't make you feel satisfied in any way? You know, there was someone else who did something in an act of service that wasn't something that they desired something that they sweat drops of blood for pleading with God to let a cup of wrath pass over them. If there was any other way, God, can I not do this? Can I not go to the cross? Is there something else, some other way to save my people? He pleaded with God that he wouldn't have to do that and still went and served his people in that way, sacrificing himself for that. Maybe it's an, uh, another way we could do that. A way we can emulate Christ, not to earn his favor, but a way of, uh, of uh, in response to what Jesus has done for us. Show up to a community group and follow the teachings of Jesus with other believers. Jesus never, people never signed up with, for private sessions with Jesus. When you examine his public ministry, everything he did was in the public with a crowd. There was only one private session. And that was with Satan in the desert and Jesus took him to school. You don't want to be that guy. God is a relational God. As I mentioned before, triunity, three persons throughout all eternity. This is part of our nature. We are created in his image. We're created for a community. 
He didn't save individuals, but a people group. And I get it. I'm a big introvert. When I, when I was a kid, my favorite job was uh, a janitor. 14 bucks an hour. I think I was like 20 years old. This is back in 2009. So it was great money for, for a young guy. And uh, four 10-hour days took me two hours to do all my work that I was able to do by myself. And then I had eight hours to sit in the janitor's closet and read books or play video games. I didn't have to talk to a soul. I loved it. I get it. I'm a big introvert. And do you have any idea what it's like being an introvert with four kids who are now all learning to talk to me all the time? Earlier this week, I told Nicole, I was like, I just need to be alone for a minute. It was like towards the end of the day. But the truth is there are no lone wolf Christians. And you don't need to do anything to prove your worth to Jesus. And you don't need to do anything to prove your worth to us. You are his family through the same blood connection that we all have, his blood. Amen? Let's pray. God, the, tr the truth is, as I just said, community is hard for some of us. S some of us love community and love being a part of it. Some of us really struggle with it. Uh, some of us don't like being exposed, don't want people to see what's really going on in our lives, God. And I, and I pray that you would put that to death in us, that we would grow in our desire to know others and be known by others, that we could hide sufficiently in your grace, that we wouldn't have to be a, a afraid of someone truly knowing us. And we thank you that you've done that for us, God, that we don't need to come to church polished and perfect, that we can be who we really are, that you love us through nothing of our own doing, but solely through the grace of God. And, we, and I pray that that would stir us in affection towards one another this week, God. We love you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.